This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 146. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. We are less than one week away from the SNN Network Australia virtual event. The full agenda is now live on the event website, which you can see at australia.snn.network. Be sure to join us on November 9th and 10th, 2020 U.S. Pacific time and 10th and 11th Australian East Coast time. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers, panels, and presenting companies. So for more information, please visit australia.snn.network. And to register for the event, please click the button register now. I look forward to seeing you all virtually at the SNN Network Australia virtual event. We have an A-plus guest list on the SNN Podcast Network this week, starting with In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure. Our hosts welcome fellow podcaster, author, and friend of the SNN Podcast Network, Tobias Carlisle. He'll be joining the boys to discuss, you know, what else? A war story. You know, it's in the market trenches. It's war story time, uh, as well as the recently announced Round Hill acquires Deep Value ETF symbol Deep D E E P on the NYSE, which will target deeply undervalued small and microcap companies. You do not want to miss out on this episode, which you can hear on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. For the next episode of Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Don, we're continuing the conversation that we started last week on dark stocks. Uh, in that episode, Maj discussed an investing experience at a company that not only was a microcap, but uh, it also happened to be a dark stock. So we, we thought it'd be really fun to invite on a guest who has vast experience investing in dark stocks, and that's Dan Shum of No Name Stocks. You will... I know I said you won't want to miss the you know the in the market treasures episode, but definitely don't want to miss this episode either. There is uh, so much information about dark stocks and investing in dark stocks; it's it's a gem. So uh, go and check it out on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. And we also have a very fun episode in store for you on the Investors Roundtable. Uh, this week's topic is trying to define what are compounders and how do we find them. There's been a thread on Twitter going around on a firm claiming to have created the term, and I figured we should do an episode to demonstrate that a definition of compounder may not be as straightforward as you might think. You can watch this episode on the SNN Network YouTube channel at www.youtube.com slash SNNWire. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Harris Cuppy Kupperman. 
Uh, he is the founder and CIO of Praetorian Capital and chief adventurer of the Adventures in Capitalism blog. Cuppy, as an investor, has always been looking for cheap stuff, something I think most of us as investors are, are also looking to accomplish. Uh, what we discuss in our interview is how he, he's gone about not only finding the cheap stuff, but then his game plan on making money on those bets. We cover his background, investing philosophy, event-driven investing, shipping, tankers, Bitcoin, just so much fun, just just a, a solid conversation on investing. So uh, thank you again for tuning in to episode 146 of the Planet Microcap podcast. And please enjoy my interview with Harris Cuppy Copperman. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me today is a very special guest. All our guests are special, but you know what? I, I want to make him feel special. So uh, we got Harris Kupperman joining me right now. He is the uh, chief adventurer at Adventures in Capitalism, as well as the founder and CIO of Praetorian Capital. Harris or Cuppy, what's going on, man? Hey, thanks for having me on. Great. It's great to have you. What would you prefer me? You know, I could do Harris. We could do Cuppy. We could do Man. I mean, whatever you want, man. Uh, everyone alive calls me Cuppy except my mom and my wife. So <laughs> let's go with Cuppy. Fair enough. All right. We'll go with Cuppy. All right, dude. Well, you know, I'd love to start off with uh, with your background. You know, where, where would you say your passion for investing began? And, and then I'm sure we'll go off on many, many tangents from there. Probably. Um, I went to boarding school in Phillips Andover, and this was during the uh, Asian crisis in 97. And, and uh, I just remember watching on TV in the rec room, all these guys in suits running around the NYSE floor, panicked and losing tons of money. And I just got to thinking that if they're losing money, someone's got to be making a lot of money. And I figured out, I, I'm not as well figure out how to make some of that money. And I opened a brokerage account with a few thousand dollars and uh, just started playing the game. That's kind of how I started. Well, so, okay, well, then how'd you figure out who was making the money? <laughs> it wasn't me the first uh, two years. Uh, no, it, it was actually really hard. Back then, you know, you know, it was, what, $10, $15 uh, each trade. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of money in my account, so I was trading, like, 50 shares. And you know, you're just giving up too much on the way in, too much on the way out. I, I really thought that the money was made day trading because you know, that's what the guys were trying to sell you. You know, here's a day trading class and do this. And, it just didn't work the way I thought it would. And so I lost some money. And that summer, I went and cleaned pools the whole summer. And I saved about $6,000 uh, working real hard in the sun. And I tried it again, except for this time, I used my brain more and started looking at you know what companies uh, were cheap and learning about valuation and really just learning how the world worked. And you know, it kind of gave me a second uh, chance to play the game. And this time, I actually made some money. Good stuff. I mean, what was that? What was that first book? That first uh, inspiration on you know maybe I should look at value investing or you know who's a couple smart guys that that they they made some money. I, I should go read what they're writing. Honestly, I just stared at the screen. I sat there all damn day and just stared at the screen, and I started looking at patterns. I started noticing that certain things would repeat themselves. And I wouldn't tell you I was a day trader because I was kind of doing more like uh, multi-week swings, but. I noticed some patterns that seemed to work and I started playing those patterns and it's surprisingly I was making good money after a while. Uh, you know, really basic stuff, you know, 
uh, like IPO, you have like three day, five day consolidation. It breaks a new high and usually just keep going or, you know, break to a new low. This is during the tech bubble. So, you know, it would just keep trending lower forever. Uh, the big, the big epiphany for me that really got me in the game was you have these companies that would, uh, uh IPO and they'd IPO at like $20 and we had 2 million share IPO, but it'd be tons of shares, you know, millions and millions of shares. But they IPO this little tiny float, and then the insiders would walk it up. The insiders being the venture capitalists, they'd walk this thing up from twenty dollars to two hundred dollars the first day, and then it'd bring all these retail guys in. And this thing would be a multi-billion-dollar company that has like negligible revenue and no path to profitability. And you know, if you shorted them, you get ran over. Uh, but what happened is that uh, six months after the IPO, you'd have the unlock. And what I realized is that the VC guys they have a cost basis of a nickel a share. They really didn't care what price they got. They just had millions of shares to sell and. The day of the unlock, the thing would waterfall and just keep waterfalling for weeks. And so I got myself a list of uh, all the unlocks. And back then, there's no service that had this sort of list. You had to go through all the SEC filings, just build your own list. And but I built this list and I started uh, shorting these companies. If they had put options, I had five puts. But I turned a couple thousand dollars into a few hundred thousand uh, during the summer and fall of 2000. That's really what got me in this game is that, uh, you know, I, I, I'd made enough money that I could, you know, make a lot of mistakes and still stay in the game. But, but that, that was kind of what uh, uh, changed it for me, you know, trying to scrape out a few hundred dollars here and there to, uh, you know, me actually being able to sit down and learn about value investing. Because I came to realize that, you know, I found this weird niche, but then it ended. I know what I'd do next. And what I did <laughs> next was find cheap companies growing fast. It was like another niche that I found that I can harvest. Right. Well, you got you got yourself to a point where you're comfortable. Like, okay, I got I got a couple bucks now. I'm feeling comfortable enough where I can support myself. And now I can take a couple bets on some high risk, high reward type stuff. Right. Well, it just came down to the fact that um, there, were, there were no more $200 stocks that were worthless to short. It was all picked over. These things were all going bust. And so I said, I got to go find a new trick. And I guess the new trick for me, I learned some value investing. I started reading and learning. But then uh, what happened is, uh, what's called, uh, uh, September 11th happened and uh, everything went and just collapsed. And uh, I, I was watching this stuff collapse and, uh, and I, I was caught along that day and it was a pretty terrible day, uh, you know, in, in terms of my portfolio. But when, when the markets reopened, uh, I started to collapse. I saw these hotel stocks that are just on the floor. And, you know, it wasn't hard to look at these things and say, you know, these things traded like 10 cents the dollar of replacement cost. Yes, they have a lot of debt. Yes, they have zero occupancy. Remember, everyone stopped flying, just like this COVID. Uh, everyone stopped traveling, everyone stopped flying. And I found these two companies that had a lot of exposure in Washington, D.C. and Manhattan, which I guess are the two places most exposed if this terrorist can attack again. And um, they were small portfolios of companies. I mean, even before the attacks, they were only two, three hundred million market cap, but they collapsed down to like 20 million market cap. They were this little, little tiny equity sliver on a lot of debt. And, uh, you know, I just knew that eventually the politicians would, you know, need to go back to D.C. and the lobbyists would and people would go back to Manhattan. And I, it was just a question of could these guys outlast it and survive long enough? And I ended up making pretty good friends with uh, some of the ladies who were running the front desks at these uh, two companies. Uh, just built a big spreadsheet with phone numbers. I'd call these girls up and How's occupancy this month? What's going on next month? What are you seeing? And that sends some flowers and some chocolates. I was charming college. And, uh, you know, I eventually saw the inflection. I went all in and, you know, it was my first real value investment and it was spectacularly good. 
uh, you know, in, in retrospect, you're not supposed to bet you know, more than 100% of your nut on two semi-bankrupt hotel stocks, but <laughs> I didn't know any better. I was like 22. All right. But anyway, um, you know, I was kind of like another giant score, and I said, to hell with uh, being a trader and to hell with, you know, uh, you know, trying to find these repeating patterns that are great and all, and if you find one, you can harvest it. But this value thing, it, it got me hooked because it's very uh, empirical, it's very logical, and you know, it just made perfect sense to me. You buy stuff really, really cheap and you wait. And, you know, that's kind of what really got me going in the direction I am now. Gotcha. I thought you were going to be like, you know, what the hell with this day trading stuff? I'm going to retire, you know? That, <laughs> oh. well, why not? Let's go, let's go okay. to the beach. <laughs> I'm myself. No, remember, cool. I'm like a sophomore in college. I'm making more money than my dad. And, you know, he went to, he's a doctor and he went to university for like 10, 15 oh. years as a doctor. And I'm like three terms in and I'm making more money than him. I'm just saying, Dad, why do I need to be in school? Like I'm wasting my time here, you know? <laughs> Wait, what did he say to that? Because that must have been a hilarious, like you, him finding out you're making more than him. He's like, "Wait, what? You're? I'm over here. I'm I'm cutting people open and and risking my neck for all this. And you just did a couple trades and you're making. I mean, that that conversation must have been hilarious." Yeah, well, I told him I was uh, dropping out of college because, you know, college is during the day and I need to be in front of my screens during the day. And he kind of pleaded with me and then he kind of told me he's going to kill me. And you know, <laughs> we, we finally settled on the fact that uh, I'd complete college, but I, I'd basically choose what my major was. Um, and so I got a history degree, which you know, I was kind of passionate. I, I, I was going for Roman history, which is something I was passionate about, oh. classics. And then I started going to night school and all the Roman history professors are like 90 years old and they're all in bed at that time. So I ended up getting my uh, major in Latin American revolutionary history. Oh, that's cool. Interesting also. Yeah, that's super. Did you read, uh, what is it, uh, Sarmiento? Uh, I, I, did you read any of that? I, I, just, I lived in Argentina for four months and we read, we read a few Latin American history books. You know, uh, it was more... I, I barely remember college. <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Wait, where'd you, where'd you go? What was it, like Castles of Solitude? I don't remember all the stuff I read. I went to uh, Tulane in New Orleans. Oh, that's fun. Of course you so I was on and fraternity. And remember, I, I was, you know, full-time investing and trading during the day, and then I had a pretty active social schedule at night. So uh, I really didn't have time for school. Uh, I kind of phoned it in and got mostly C's and D's. And, hey, I, you, where's the, do you have a degree? I mean, it should be, it's, it's on the wall somewhere. Like, you got it. You know? <laughs> Uh, we just moved into our new office about a month and a half ago. I haven't unpacked anything. Uh, I actually started uh, collecting stock certificates about 10 years ago. And I oh, that's stock awesome. Stock certificates. And, uh, there's a bunch of them actually in my condo up on the wall, and the rest of them are in storage. Uh, one of these weekends, I'm going to go pick them out and put them up on the walls. We do this again awesome. in a year, you'll see a bunch of certificates on me. <laughs> My my dad does the same thing. He's got he's got a whole bunch of certificates. They they're not up on the walls yet, but they we have we have a whole bunch just kind of all over the place. They're they're really cool. Oh, um, like the original Panama Canal, you know, the, the French Panama Canal bonds, and, and I got like Confederate War bonds. You know, I got, I got all sorts of cool stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Wait, I, and I have to ask, what what fraternity were you in? Oh, I was ZBT. Are you ZBT? Oh, okay, I was A Pi. So I, I, okay. I, I, a couple man. I fi- I figured we might we might cross paths at that point. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> you never know. Well, all right. So Guppy, let's let's fill in the gap, man. All right. So 
did pretty well as a college student, making a couple bucks, you know, fill in the gap for me. So how do we get from college student making a couple bucks to founding Praetorian Capital? Well, it was actually kind of easy because uh, all my dad's golf buddies kept calling me up for stock tips. And they're just like, what are you buying today? What are you doing? Because and they started making a lot of money on stock tips. And uh, my senior year of college, they came to me and they said, you know, hey, here's, you know, 50 grand, here's 25 grand, uh, you just take the money. And I don't really know what I was doing because I was you know, 21. And so I'm just like, yeah, I'll take it. And I looked on the internet and I found some uh, partnership documents. And I'm sure I did it totally wrong, but you know, thankfully everyone made money so I didn't get sued. But I changed the names and the dates and we were off and running with a hedge fund. Uh, <laughs> and then about two years later, I got my first you know, pretty large New York client and he looked at my documents and he kind of laughed at me. And he said, you have to go with this law firm. And I went with one of the really expensive law firms. And they redid everything and, you know, uh, really professionalized everything. But I was a hedge fund by that time. I had great uh, numbers. And in the end, you know, no one invests in you because of your, uh, uh, your, your documents. They invested the numbers. And uh, you know, I started my fund January of 2003. We were just coming out of that little mini recession uh, in 2002. And uh, I was a small cap growth guy. And I was buying a lot of these uh, small cap growth companies, mainly consumer products. And you know, a lot of these things probably shouldn't have been public. They're like legacy weird assets, but I was buying a lot of things that were growing 30 to 50% a year. And I was paying like three times earnings. A lot of them had minimal debts and high insider ownership. And these things just ended up being 10 baggers, you know? It, it, it was so easy. They just gave money away that year. And then for the next few years. And from, from there, you know, I was a really early uh, believer in the commodity boom and what was happening in China. So we got ourselves into copper and tankers and gold and uh, cooking coal, and anything that China need. I mean, the story that I always told people is go through a list of what China needs and make sure they need more. And we were just going to own all of it. And between that, the consumer products companies I had, we just put together a huge year, back to back to back, huge years. And so, you know, I, I never really raised a lot of money. I wasn't really that good at it. Uh, I guess, you know, no one gives money to a guy in his early 20s, <laughs> but, but we just had so much from profits from compounding, you know, every year, year after year, that ended up being a decently successful fund. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience, actually. Oh, very cool. So, so catch us up to today. I mean, Praetorian's still around. You started this blog, Adventures in Capitalism. So when did you start the blog and why? So... Well, let's just go back in time a little. Uh, in 2008, uh, you know, I owned a lot of smaller companies, uh, a lot of small cap stocks. And uh, when the world ends uh, in 2008, nine, uh, of course, you know, small, large caps drop by half, and small ones drop by more. Uh, and it kind of turned me off to the whole hedge fund thing because a bunch of guys were redeeming; they wanted their money back. The world was ending, whatever's happening. And I'm saying, I want to buy. This is like the moment you got to be buying. And instead. You know, they're saying, no company, you got to be selling. And I'm just saying, this makes no sense. And so I, I kind of put the, the hedge fund into runoff. Um, it kind of just turned me off the whole hedge fund thing. And I'd made a decent chunk of money and I didn't really need a job or anything. And so I went off and did my own thing for a while. Um, you know, I started a company, which I'd rather not talk about, but I kind of did my own thing for a while. And then um, in 2018, I got myself into trouble with a company called Amia which was, uh, it owned the aeroplane program in Canada. They were undervalued, and the management team was just looting the company. They were, they were just taking all the value away. 
And I owned a lot of it, and uh, but not enough to influence the outcome. And I said to myself, you know, you, you, as an investor, you could either own a couple shares and you sell and walk away, or you can own enough shares that you can, you know, threaten them that you're going to hire lawyers, you're going to go to 19.9. You're in this like nether world where you own too many shares only to sell because, I mean, one, there's slippage on the way out, and two, I see the value there, but I couldn't solve my own problem. And it just made me think that I ought to restart my hedge fund because it gives you that sort of firepower to fight back. Uh, you know, I'm not an activist. I don't want to be an activist. I actually find that a lot of people who buy into a failing company looking for a fight, uh, you know, often misunderstand the situation. They think the problem is management. And many times it might be management actually is a problem. But I, I think just as many times, um, it's just a bad business and management's doing their best. And the problem isn't management. It, it's just a bad business. And people think, oh, you can move this thing around and change that thing. And it just doesn't work the way they hope. Plus, they spend millions of dollars of their own money, uh, you know, fighting against management who spends millions of dollars of their money fighting back to keep their jobs. It just seems like a terrible way to make money. Uh, so I, I'm, I never said I was an activist. I, I want to be, you know, a constructionist. I want to help. But at, at the same time, I don't intend to ever be a victim either. And if management is going to go loot my company, I want to fight back. So in the end, that's why I relaunched Praetorium. And uh, when we relaunched uh, January of last year. Gotcha. So, I mean, (laughs) now we're definitely all caught up. So, I mean, in telling your your story here, I mean, has has anything changed in terms of your investing style and approach or you're still consistently looking for small cap value or or you kind of look all over the place or, or change up your strategy? Yes and no. I mean, at the core of what I do, I want to find small companies that are going to become big. It's uh, it's really great when you find one of these because you don't have to really think very hard or do much year after year. They just grow and the valuation compounds. And when they hit a certain threshold for size, suddenly they join the ETFs and then they just go parabolic. Um, unfortunately, anything with any sort of growth right now trades at an insane valuation. I just can't find anything that interests me. Um, and so instead, I've been doing other things. Uh, uh, you know, you have to kind of reinvent yourself. And you know, right now I'm doing a lot more inflection investing. Uh, you know, you, you've heard of global macro. Uh, I like to talk, you know, global macro is kind of like interest rates and currencies. And I like to think of global micro. These are all the small little markets that no one really talks about. Um, you know, it's little sectors, it's little niche things that haven't forgotten, often cyclical sometimes, you know, you know, you just have a catalyst that takes a sleepy sector and moves it. but if you can follow these sectors and identify when the inflection is happening, you can make a surprising amount of money because all these stocks are valued as if they're pretty much dead, maybe maybe because they are. And if anything goes right in any possible way, you have huge uh, multiple expansion, you have huge appreciation. So I've been doing a lot more of that. Um, you know, in the end, you have to take what the market gives you. And right now, the market is very uh, ETF focused and it's very passive focused and it's very quantitative focused. And you know all those strategies uh, kind of ignore companies that have uh, earnings volatility, uh, whether it's quarterly volatility or cyclicality or any sort of volatility. Computers can't model it, and if the computers can't model it, it has a low valuation, which means that then uh, the ETFs don't buy it. And so you have these orphan securities all over the place. And I've been spending my time on that sort of stuff just to see the, the potential, I guess. Gotcha. All right. Well, th- this actually 
uh, kind of segues into some of the things I wanted to talk to you about because, you know, I went, went on Adventures of Capitalism, you know, I've been following you on Twitter for a long time as well. And the one thing you've been talking about a lot, well, you just closed the thread on it. So I don't know if you're still looking at this or not, but uh, that has to do with the venture of an investing, you know, and this idea of inflection point investing. So, I mean, you know, I, I mean, are you still looking for opportunities like that? And if yes, you know, what are, what are some of your criteria? In, in terms of inflection or event driven, the, the third thing I do is we take uh, some. Is there a difference? I mean, that's an interesting question. Is that is is there a difference between inflection point and event driven? No, so, like an inflection investment is something like uh, St. Joe, which we'll talk about in a bit, or, or tankers, which I'm sure you're going to ask me about. Um, no. That's something, <laughs> that's no. something you put on, and you have a multi-quarter thesis, and it plays out or doesn't play out. I think of event driven as being something that's very uh, truncated in terms of time. It's a couple of weeks, maybe a month or two, but you see an event, whether it's like a spinoff or a secondary offering or you know, rights offering, it's some discrete event, and you have a duration of that event, and either it works or it doesn't work. You have stop and place, which may take you out of the event earlier, but it's a very discrete event, and it's usually tied to some sort of corporate action. And so that's event driven to me. Um, you know, uh, in, inflection, you know, some of these can inflect and keep going for years. Uh, it, it, I, think, I think it was sort of different in terms of timeline. Gotcha. Yeah, no, because like when I think of it, and, and, I, and I agree completely with what you just said, because, you know, when I think of inflection point, you know, you think of not just what could be an inflection point for the company, but usually when you ask, a spe- you know, a microcap and say, hey, what's, what's an inflection point that's coming up? You know, they usually have some kind of macro thing. And that's what might influence an event-driven action for that company, you know, that might be coming up, you know, whether it's, I won't name certain sectors, but, you know, especially, all right, let's say like, especially right now with EV or or anything like that, if if something happens, for instance, in in that sector, if they have any kind of exposure, you know, that could, that could be quote unquote an inflection point for that company sometimes, but that's, but that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I don't know. I think of event driven. I mean, let's talk about an event driven trade I did quite recently. Uh, there's a company called Dillard's. It's basically JCPenney 2.0, or I guess if Sears were 1.0, JCPenney's 2.0, Dillard's 3.0. Uh, it's a failing department store chain, okay? Uh, it's got a decent balance sheet and it, it's got some uh, property assets, but I, I wasn't buying a dying department store chain. It's not really how you make money. What interests me is that there's more share short. And they are in float, and the company's actively buying back shares. So you have a, a clear uh, event where, you know, at, at some point you're probably going to squeeze higher because if the company keeps buying in the shares and there's not a lot of shares outstanding anyway in the float, it, it, it sort of solves itself because people lose the borrow. I'll, I've been watching it for a while, but when uh, the borrow rate spiked from like 8, 9, 12%, whatever, and it got into the 80 to 100, I just knew something was happening. I bought quite a lot of it. And uh, about Three weeks later, a month later, uh, I mean, I, I bought mine about 28 and I sold mine about 41. I wrote about it on my blog, Adventures in Capitalism. It was about like a one month trade to make 40%. And I guess I should have held on to it, got all the way to 60, but um, I haven't sold I was too soon. But um, it was one of these clear things where you're risking very little because you know you, you know the company's there using their revolver to buy back stock. They, they were buying back stock during uh, Q2 when the world was kind of ending. So things are incrementally better as uh, COVID uh, abates and the world starts opening up. So if they were using their revolver back then and they were losing money, they're probably still using the revolver. 
So you know that they were sitting there in the high 20s buying back stocks, you got this floor underneath you, and you know that they're going to cancel the shares when they buy them back, so they're going to squeeze. And there's one of these sort of layup trades you get to see every once in a while, but that, that's kind of how I think of an adventure. Gotcha. Hey, a quick tangent. I mean, you know, how have you been playing this COVID market right now? I mean, we, you know, every ever since everything happened since March, you know, what, how, what, what's been the things that you've been seeing? You know, where have you been finding value? Well, it's value everywhere. I mean, there's a period in March where uh, everything was cheap, like truly cheap. Even great businesses were cheap. I mean, I wrote on my blog that the day at the bottom, I basically wrote. A blog post and I said, if you're not buying now, like, what are you having to buy? And I know people sent me this hate mail. They're like, "Company, you don't get it. The world's ending. We're all gonna die." And I'm like, "Yeah, it looks like a bad cold. Like, we're all gonna live." Um, and it turned out to be the absolute bottom. And you know, I was 150 long uh, that that Monday, um, and I pretty much rode it 150 all the way up until six weeks ago. Uh, I just stayed long. I, mean, I cycled through different uh, sectors, but I just stayed long because. I have this uh, mental construct I, I call Project Zimbabwe, which basically says that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to print money kind of like uh, they did in Zimbabwe. And I visited Zimbabwe in 2010, and I was there on a day where the, uh, the, the national airline went out of business. We actually had to hitchhike our way home uh, in, into Zambia, and I went to visit the stock exchange, and the power went out. Uh, there, there was no food on the streets. There was nothing in the restaurants. But the country stopped. Yet the stock market tripled that day. And so it kind of, in my mind, told me that you don't need a functioning economy. You don't need, you know, uh, Venezuela doesn't have toilet paper if the market goes up like that. Um, you don't need any of these functioning things if they print enough money. And you know, I don't think we're going to do Zimbabwe here in the United States, but we're going to do Zimbabwe light. And I think the stock market's going to keep going up. And you know, I think there's only two postures right now, which are you know, very long and incredibly long. And there'll be some shakeouts that are terrifying and they'll try to shake your conviction, especially around the election that degrowth quite a lot. But for the most part, you just want to be really, really long. And so uh, knowing that, I just every day show up and say, what's the cheapest thing I could buy? And I cycle assets. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So, I mean, I, I, I can already hear my audience being like, well, ask him what's the cheapest stuff that he's seeing right now. But you know what it changed? It sounds like it changes every day. Well, I want to not every long. day, not every day, but you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, but I'm, I don't trade around that much. I have an adventure book, which is a few percent of our capital, which, uh, you know, we move around a lot. Uh, it takes a lot of energy, but the returns are very high. But the vast majority of what I'm long, I've been long for months and months. Uh, I think the cheapest thing on the screen right now is a company called St. Joe. Uh, it's our largest position. Um, just, I want to be long inflation. I think if you print enough money, eventually get inflation. Except for, I think the Federal Reserve will manipulate the, the bond market to keep uh, interest rates low. So you have an inflationary market with low interest rates. You want to be low property. Um, you know, I also think there's going to be uh, a, a kind of resurgence uh, repeatedly of kind of uh, uh, chaos. I call it the chaos. But you know, you have riots and things will go quiet again. If something stupid will happen, there'll be more riots. Uh, you have a lot of uh, very high tax states that are going bankrupt. And then you have Florida, which is a zero income tax state. And we have net migration every year here. And I think the pace of migration will accelerate now that work from home uh, is a real thing. And you don't have to go into the, you know, you don't have to go into Manhattan to a 40 story office building to do your job. So why would you ever live in uh, New Jersey or Connecticut when you could just come to Florida? And, you know, besides the Panhandle is one of the most beautiful places uh, in the United States. 
It reminds me a lot of the Hamptons. Uh, I'm from Long Island originally. And I remember these were like potato fields when I was uh, a kid. And they ended up becoming like 20-acre horse mansions and, um, and horse farms and mansions. And the guys who own those potato fields made a fortune. And I see the same thing happening with St. Joe, where they are the largest owner of, uh, well, they own 175,000 acres in the Florida Panhandle, most of its coastline. Um, you know, I, I just think it's a stock that probably should be trading for a few hundred dollars today. And I think it ultimately trades higher from there. It's the most undervalued stock. Uh, so yes, you know, if, if, if I see this, why does no one else see this? And the real issue is that for the very longest time, nothing's happening. They own land. Uh, there's really no cash flow. They'd sell off some acres each year to make payroll, cover sg And so the thing, you know, it was kind of shrinking over time in terms of selling acres to you know, pay management salaries. And they brought in a new CEO who said, this is not sustainable. And he kind of said, how do we create recurring cash flow? And over the last few years, he's created a whole lot of recurring cash flow, actually. And as they sell off uh, acres, you know, they're selling lots for home sites. They're, they're you're using the capital to reinvest in everything that happens when you bring thousands of people a year to the property you own. That's one of these weird things where, you know, if you look at like a Lennar, they'll, they'll put down a couple hundred units uh, of multifamily or, or, you know, single family, whatever they do. And then they go, you know, 100 miles down the road and they do it again. If you own 175,000 mostly contiguous acres, if you take some acres where there's nothing happening, you build uh, multifamily, you build uh, housing, apartments, or anything you build, well, everything around it now needs a grocery store, it needs a CVS, it needs a Starbucks. And then you get to build all this other super high uh, uh, return on capital stuff and lease it out and then resell it or keep it. So every time they build something on their property, they're adding up, you know, they, all the stuff that's around it, these acres that everyone says, oh, they're worthless acres, those become very valuable because there's suddenly people there. And you have this flywheel that just keeps spinning faster. In, in the end, I think it's going to grow 30 to 50% a year. I think I'm coming into it at a single digit multiple on cash flow. And I don't know why you'd ever buy a SaaS stock is here you could buy something at like eight, 10 times uh, 2022 cash flow. And you're picking up a hundred bucks plus a share of land for free. And it's growing really fast, 30, 50% a year. I don't know. This is my biggest possession. Uh, it, it hits every macro or micro trend I, I see. And, uh, you know, I'm structuring inflation. I don't know why you need to own gold, you know, this is I actually swapped my, my gold after Joe. Yeah. No, you know, I mean, you know, what's interesting is uh, we, we did a, we did a show on, uh, or we did an episode on the investors roundtable. It's another show that I host. We were talking about mass migration, you know, and kind of moving all, especially I was, I was griping mostly because I live in Los Angeles and I'm just like, why the hell am I here anymore? You know, and just everything. We, my wife and I asked that, that we have a lot of family around here. We have a newborn. So that's like the easy answer. But at the same time, we're just like, ah, everything's so expensive, you know, like, and, and there's, you, you know, you can go and do what you do. I mean, I could do what I do anywhere, you know, I just need, I, I just need good internet. What? Well, I'm in Florida. It's great. You know, I have internet here and I can, I mean, I can do something anywhere, but I, I love it here. I live in South Beach. It's great. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Should I come to Florida? I mean, I've been thinking about, I, you know, I, I've been pitching Florida a little bit to my wife, you know, just like, Hey, you know, it's, it's close to the Caribbean, you know, we can, you yeah. know, there's only there's a couple hurricanes. It's not a big deal. Like, you know, it's just, it's, I don't about, yeah, you know, it's, if, 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 you know, it's for a couple days and then you go surf Miami beach, it's all offshore and it's beautiful. Come check it out. It's uh it's a really great place. And you know, what's interesting about Florida is like, uh, and everyone focuses on South Florida because that's where most of the population is. But it's a really big state. And it's a very varied yeah. state. It's really three states. You have South Florida, 
which is global sports leagues. You have South Florida, which is its own thing. You have the Florida Keys, which everyone always forgets about, but they're, they're their own thing. You have Central Florida, which is really its own thing. And then you have the Panhandle, which is really Southern Alabama. And so you have like different cultures, different regions. It's, it's very varied and different. And I'd say go find the one that's right for you. Absolutely. All right. So let's get back to investing a little bit. So uh, as you alluded to, we're going to, I got to ask about shipping and tankers. You know, that that's, I don't, I don't know if it's a claim to fame, but you've talked about it a lot. You've had, you've had exposure to it. So, I mean, are we still, are we, are we still looking at shipping and tankers or, you know, what's, what's your thought process there? I'm still on tankers. I think it's uh, actually going quite well. Um, you know, I'm a bit frustrated because I haven't made any money, but uh, I haven't lost any money either. I mean, the, the whole point of inflection investing is you come in there with your position right at the inflection. And if you look at when I bought my tankers in Q1 of uh, 2019, I basically bought the absolute bottom of a, was it, a 10-year bear market. Um, and I got the exact bottom. And after 10 years of losing money, they basically had six consecutive quarters with quite a lot of profits. Uh, net asset values of these companies uh, grew because they retained capital. They sold some older vessels on spikes. They locked in some charters. They did some smart things. They got some dividends along the way. Um, you know, the thesis is actually playing out more or less as I expected it to. You have uh, IMO 2020 and you have IMO 2030 as gating functions, which are taking older, older tonnage off the water at the same time that uh, there's a real dearth of new ordering because no one knows what new regulations are gonna look like. Uh, I think there's a real case to be made that's gonna be hard to order new vessels going forward because you know, a, a tanker lasts 20 to 25 years and I don't know if they're gonna be using ammonia, I don't know if they're gonna be using solar powered, wind powered, uh, nuclear, uh, LPG, LNG. If you don't know what the, fuel, the propulsion source will be going forward in 15 years, how can you make a 25 year investment? Because it's gonna be obsolete before you recoup your capital. And so I think you have a lot of things working very well for tankers. Uh, you know, This year is actually the most profitable year in uh, 10 years, 12 years for tankers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat baffled that tankers trade at uh, the prices they do given how much money they've made. And you know, I feel like the whole world is so focused on you know, this week's charter rates, which quite frankly are terrible. And they're focused on this week's charter rates, and they're not really looking at, you know, what what, what the full year has looked like for the, the past 12 months. The end is a cyclical industry. Summer's always terrible. Uh, I assume this winter will be weaker than last winter, though probably better than the prior winter. Uh, you have a lot of fuel just because of COVID. Demand's down because of COVID. And that's going to eventually lead to scrapping. But looking at forward another 6 to 12 months, you know, the United States was producing 14 million barrels of uh, oil before COVID started. Uh, we'll probably be somewhere in the nine to 10 range when COVID is finally ending. And we're gonna be importing, let's call it four to five million incremental barrels because uh, demand's gonna snap back and we're all gonna be flying again. And when demand snaps back, where's those five million barrels gonna come from? You start looking around the globe, you know, Canada has the same shale problem, high decline rates that we do. Plus they have pipeline issues. Mexico's in decline. Venezuela doesn't really produce oil anymore. Guyana's up a little, Brazil's up a little, West Africa's a mess, uh, Libya has no government, <laughs> you know? You start looking around the globe and you go, it's all coming from the Middle East and those are super long hauls. And so yeah, I'm bullish tankers. Uh, I'd like to add a lot more. I still have a lot. Um, you know, when it popped, I sold some. Just, it's, it's kind of a risk thing, you know? When you have a position that's oversized position, it doubles. 
it gets to be way too big in your portfolio. At one point, tankers are almost 60% of my fund. It, you have to call back. And it, it's, you know, you, being disciplined is hard because when it's going really well, you say, why am I selling this thing that goes up every day? But then you kind of look at it today and you go, thank God I sold some. Uh, but I, I've added some back on the way back down and waiting for a moment to really step in and add size because I believe in this trade. Gotcha. I mean, I just, I remember, I know in like the micro cap space, it's some of the most, it's probably the most volatile uh, sector potentially in the micro cap space, you know, huge trading volumes, always very liquid. So I was always curious as to, you know, I mean, you know, looking at the the underlying business and seeing what's real. I mean, in micros, it's, you know, you got, you you listen to the presentations and it's, uh, all right, we got six tankers, we got five tankers. I don't know. Do you look at uh, the micro cap tanker uh, area as well, or do you kind of just look all over the place? Just whatever, whatever is good or quality. Yeah, I'm looking for quality. I mean, in the end, tankers are a commodity product, okay? So it's not so much like this tanker is different from this tanker. They're all kind of the same. You know, you, you might have a view that I want to have scrubbers or I don't want to have scrubbers or I like older tonnage or new tonnage or eco. I mean, you can kind of choose where you want to be or you can just take a view that I'm going to play in the basket, which is what I've been doing personally. Um, and then it comes down to management. I want to uh, work with people that are actual, uh, you know, uh, shepherds my capital and will treat well and not just steal the money which you know shipping is notorious for but in the end i want to buy uh, that steel on the water for the cheapest price i want to uh, you know you build a big spreadsheet that tracks all the shipping companies and let's go buy the, the cheapest steel i can with the best management team i can and you know that, that's kind of my goal and i'll move around in the cycle you know maybe i'll go to product versus clean versus dirty you know. I'll pivot around based on where I see uh, the trends and you know, the valuation. But in the end, this is just value investing. Uh, if tanker rates go up, they all go up. If tanker rates go down, they all go down. Right now, my biggest, my, my only tanker position really is a company called TK Tankers. They um, very well run. They uh, locked in a third of their fleet uh, when things were good. And they're actually doing quite well while everyone else isn't. Uh, and it's funny, they've actually been penalized worse than a lot of the guys that are suffering right now. And meanwhile, they paid off a lot of their debt when things were good as well. Uh, and, and because their fleet is a little older, they you actually get a lot more deadweight tons on the water for uh, the enterprise value, which is always attractive too. Assuming you think things inflect in the next year or two as opposed to 10 years out. If you don't own tankers, you think it's gonna be good 10 years out anyway. So in, in a way, you kind of want to own the guy that's in the 12 to 15 year old fleet. It gives you enough runway to see your uh, thesis play out, but you know, you're not buying such a young vessel that uh, you get you know, less leverage. Anyway, I own a lot of that. I own a lot of company called Dorian, which is a very large uh, gas carrier. Uh, uh, propane demands in uh, Asia is just going parabolic right now, and uh, they have to get it from somewhere, and they're mostly getting it from the United States. And those are super long hauls, and uh, actually, uh, BLGC rates are doing quite well right now. And, uh, Oddly, uh, Dorian has dropped with the other tanker stocks where uh, uh, it's just being lumped in. And it, it, I think it's a mistake because uh, Dorian's actually making quite a lot of money right now. Gotcha. All right. So it's about two times cash flow and about one third of an asset value. Wow. So I want to I want to switch gears a little bit because I want to talk about another topic that uh, you've talked about recently on Twitter and, and, and I think in your blog as well. Uh, and that's your exposure to Bitcoin. So talk to me. Yeah. What? Let, let's hear your thesis, man. Like, what? What's? What? What do you? What have you found so interesting about about Bitcoin recently? So 
I'm not one of those Bitcoin bros that think it's going to revolutionize. What? Come on, dude. Let's go. Come on. I was really hoping a Bitcoin bro out right now. <laughs> it's worthless. It's just bits in the sky. It's, a, it's functionally worthless. It's a giant Ponzi scheme. It's kind of like an evolutionary uh, dead end to nowhere. There's going to be a, I mean, the blockchain is real and there'll be another blockchain that becomes the one that everyone wants. Uh, at the same time, I recognize a good Ponzi scheme when I see it. And you go on Twitter, you see how many people are pumping it. And people talk about this being like a distributed ledger, but I think this is a globally distributed uh, Ponzi scheme. The, you know, normally there's one guy at the top of the Ponzi scheme doing all the work. Here you have thousands of different uh, Twitter personalities all pumping the thing forward. It, it's, it's actually a great Ponzi scheme. Uh, in the end, there's a pretty thin float and there's this vehicle called Grayscale Bitcoin Trust that keeps buying all the free floats and you have the true believers that never sell you have satoshi that hasn't sold you, you have a pretty narrow float somewhere between six and eight million coins and grayscale has about a half million of them now and keeps adding a few thousand every day and at some point they're gonna just corner the market in this thing and once they corner the market it takes not much incremental buying to push it up and once you get above let's call it twenty thousand, i think uh fomo takes over and all the retail guys come in I mean, you just saw PayPal build you a conduit. You don't have to go to Coinbase. You don't have to open a separate account to buy some coins. You just, you know, throw it through your PayPal account. Uh, Square has done the same thing. Um, you only have MicroStrategy or Square. They're also buying it. I'm pretty sure that maybe not Q3, but definitely by Q4, you'll see some other large tech stocks report that they own uh, Bitcoin as well. So you have this sort of thing where there's not much of a float and there's a lot of guys consuming this float. and you know, eventually it's just an old fashioned squeeze higher and it feels very inevitable to me. I know a whole lot of uh, Bitcoin through uh, Grayscale. There's about 20 of these uh, vehicles publicly that are every country has one or two of these and they're all buying Bitcoin every day because, you know, money comes in. And unlike an ETF where, you know, you can take your money back out if it trades below NAV, these are permanent vehicles. So once the, the Bitcoins are bought, they, they, they never leave again. So it, it's a, once I understood the mechanics of how this worked, I kind of said, you know, I know this thing is absolutely functionally worthless, but I like a good old Ponzi scheme too. So I'm long. And I've been long since about 9,000. It's been good to me. Got, yeah, no, it's, it's not, it's not, hey, what, what are we trading at today? I think it was at just over 13 or 13.8 uh, right now. 13.7. Oh, it's had another little run today. Oh, there we go. All yeah. right. Well, hey, Bitcoin. <laughs> I think it goes a whole lot higher because, I mean, it still has that kind of like scarcity value thing. And in theory, it, it's good if inflation goes up. And I think inflation goes up and it seems to do well with uh, geopolitical volatility. I'm sure we'll have some more of that. I, I think it just plays into a lot of uh, social and macro trends right now. But in the end, it's just a Ponzi's game. For sure. All right. Well, now we're at my favorite question that I love to ask all my guests on here. So, you know, what, Cuppy, what would you say is an investing experience that impacted you the most thus far in your career? The most? I don't know. I mean, you mean like having a big win or? Big win, big loss, learn the most from, you know, all or all the above. Well, yeah, let me give you a, one I, I learned a lot from. So I haven't talked about this. And, um. There was a company, uh, Health South, South Health, I don't remember what it's called. But I used to do a lot of these block trading stuff where uh, I had a bunch of these brokers. They'd call me up, be like, hey, Cuppy, we're going to print a million shares, two bucks in the hole. Do you want to take 50,000? 
They'd be like, yeah, sure, I'll take it. And then, you know, two days later, it bounced 50 cents, you sell it, or now it's a dollar. Because, I mean, they've had these blocks they had to get rid of. And, you know, nowadays, you know, a big institutional investor, a pension fund, whatever, they want to move a few million shares, they put it in the view up machine, it kind of goes away. Uh, but back then, these guys would just say, okay, you know, what, what price we price it at? And they, so I bought a bunch of these blocks. Um, and every single time it worked, so I started playing it bigger. And I got into this thing called Health South, and it was down quite a lot. And this big block, and my guy calls me up, and I go, "Yeah, I'll take a bunch." And I took too much. Uh, I took way too much, actually. And uh, about ten minutes after the block cleared, uh, I came on TV that the Feds had raided them. It ended up being a fraud. It went bankrupt, and the stock was halted. And it was kind of terrifying because I was playing these things really big because they're only picking up fifty cents or a buck, and you know, I started looking at where it was indicating pre-market, and I was basically bankrupt, uh, which is one of those things you're not supposed to do in this business. You know, the, the whole point is not to go broke. Uh, you know, I was like 20. This is before I had my hedge fund, so I was like, oh, 19 or 20. But it, it was kind of a scary thing. Like, I'd worked for a couple of years and built up a, a, a grub stake, and you could lose it all one day. And you know, thankfully, the thing uh, opened and went straight up and blew out of it. It was a pretty big loss, but you know, it was, I was able to recover pretty fast. And uh, I said to myself, you, you know, I'm looking to actually have position when it's going far because you know, the whole point of this game is not to blow up. It's kind of one of those learning things that thankfully I did when I was 20 as opposed to or 19, whatever it was, as opposed to doing now, you know, at my age, because you know, I don't want to be broke. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's just one of those things that I think everyone in their career has to do once where they have one of these like, oh shit moments. And then realize that hey, let's let's tone down the position size. Let's let let's let's live to fight another day. Like I don't care how bullish you are. Like you can't just go all in. Uh, you know, I, I see a lot of people being like, yeah, I went all in on this one. It's like really? Like no, you're not supposed to go all in. Like that's the whole point. You're supposed to have some reserves. So if it drops, you can average down. Or you know, it's one of those things. I think everyone has to screw up once in their career. So I figured I'd, I'd toss that one across because I'm sure you have a bunch of uh, listeners who. Uh, you know, are probably gonna make the same mistake I did. And, you know, thankfully the thing, you know, I remember it's like a $40 stock, it's indicated like 15 bucks. And I was like, oh my God, I'm broke. And then it opened at like 25 and kind of traded up to low 30s and just got out of it that day. And then it basically rolled over and went bankrupt over the next like year. But it's one of those super <laughs> scary moments. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, have you had any oh shit moments since? You know, uh, maybe, maybe in the last couple no. of years that you've been like, oh, that's- <laughs> That's so different. This is the closest oh shit moment. It wasn't even my moment. It was a very good friend of mine. Uh, he, you know when Kodak had <laughs> the supernova, right? Um, it was like last month. It went from like two bucks to 60. So a buddy of mine, he, he has a decent sized fund and he was short some Kodak. I literally don't even think it was his possession. He had his analyst put on like 50 or 100 bits. Let's call it 100 bits of 20 uh, dying tech stocks. It was just kind of like a beta hedge for his long book. So he didn't even put the effort into it. You know, it was like, I'll take some Kodak, I'll do some of this, I'll do some of that. He's like, yeah, let's do 100 bucks each. $2 stock. And they announced this uh, pharma thing. It got up to eight bucks. And my guy, so it goes from 100 bucks to, let's call it 400 bucks. So my guy's like, okay, let's sell 200 bucks more. So now it's like, at eight bucks, it's like, you know, it's 400 bucks, it's 700 bucks now, or whatever. And, you know, the next day it goes to 60. And my buddy, he's just like, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, what can you do? It's halted up limit. And he called me. He's like, what do I do? I'm sure, you know, 500,000 shares. Or whatever. 
I'm like, what can you do? It's halted up limiter again. Like you just asked me what to do, and it's just one of the five bucks. Like there's nothing you can do. And you know, I, ha- I had that same uh, like uh, you know your heart seizes up, but but for my friend because it just keeps going up limit, and it has like 12 consecutive halts. And even if he tried to buy a half million shares, he wouldn't be able to because he would just push it up limit again. And eventually, some sellers showed up, and the stock came from 60 down to like 25 or something, and he had a really large loss for his fund, but he'll live to fight a day, another day. And uh, I hope you learned a lesson. I mean, the lesson is don't short stocks because, you know, on the long side, you can trade at any price. And as long as you don't have too much margin on, you'll just average down. But on the short side, you know, a $2 stock can go to 60 on no news, really. And that's just terrifying that a 100 bits position can, you know, take down a couple hundred million dollar fund. So <laughs> a- anyway, um, you asked me if I've seen that again. You know, thankfully it wasn't me. He's asking, what do I do? And I said, I have no idea what to do. Like, <laughs> No, no, I feel like that's I feel like that's what makes it an oh shit moment. You know, it's just like, oh shit. You know, like is if <laughs> it, it, because you're just at a loss. You see it happening, you're like But it's shit. not even that you're at a loss to see it happening. It's that you know, it just gaps up five bucks on like twenty thousand shares and it's frozen again. And it's like this what is it, ten minute circuit breaker, fifteen minute, and you get kind of like, oh shit, oh shit, what do I do? And before you do, you do anything, it's up about five dollars. Like, and anything you do just forces it up limit more. Like, you, you just make your own problem. What you have to do really is just sit there and hope your margin clerk doesn't notice. And you know, it gives you time to hope the stock drops. But I mean, it's terrifying to think that a two dollars stock can go to sixty. And that's why I keep telling people to stop shorting. Yeah. No, for sure. Well, that actually leads into my next question. You know, what what advice would you have for new investors or just any investor who's listening to this right now that's looking to either enter the market or just just in general? What advice do you have in the current state of the market right now? I mean, the current state of the market is really odd in that you have this huge bifurcation. You have uh, anything that's in an ETF that's gone to outer space, then you have all these companies that are ridiculously cheap. I mean, my portfolio trades at like one, two, and three times cash flow, and many of them are growing businesses. It makes no sense. I've never seen anything this cheap. Uh, you're mostly looking at C and D sort of businesses, but I mean, C's should still trade at some multiple. I would tell people to ignore the news, ignore TV, stay off Twitter. Um, you know, you, you just all those things just play with your emotions and force you to trade. I would say go read some of the books, uh, listen to the guys who everyone's forgotten about now, all the classic value investors, everyone's laughing at them saying they're buying the wrong stuff. And I think they'll be proven right in, in, in the end. And, you know, I go to some of these uh, value investing websites and just read everything written by successful investors and just absorb and learn. Uh, and, and don't be scared to go buy energy stocks after they're totally washed out. Don't be scared to go buy coal stocks or tankers or you know, just buy cheap stuff and you ignore what's happening around you and you get paid eventually. That's what I would say. That's that's a great way to end it right there. So Cuppy, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know to follow you, uh, get some more information about Praetorian Capital as well as uh, Adventures in Capitalism? So if you sign up for my uh, website, Adventures in Capitalism, uh, I, I write articles whenever I get around to it. It's a, it's, it's a free blog, so you get what you pay for. And, it tends to be when uh, I come home from dinner with my wife and sit down for another bottle of wine. And, you know, what's the saying? Uh, uh, 
write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> so, um, you know, I just, whatever I post and, you know, just sign up for the email alerts and you get them. Uh, in terms of my fund, uh, it's uh, a Praetorian Capital. You can find me at praycap.com, but uh, only go there if you're accredited. Very good. All right. Well, with that, Cuppy, Harris Kupperman, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun, and I'm sure we'll have you back on again at some point in the future. Sounds great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, thank you. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.